Welcome to a new episode of the Arduino Edivision podcast. Thanks for listening. We're your hostess, Melissa and Roxana from Arduino Education. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and get notifications when a new episode is published and never miss one. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor and other common audio platforms. So education is an evolving process that consistently introduces new theories and practices in accordance with the most recent research available. One of the latest introductions into the world of education today is STEM education. The term STEM was coined around 20 years ago and focuses on the core subjects of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. To learn more about how STEM has evolved and changed education, what are the challenges faced by teachers, students, and more, joining us today is William Church. Bill Church loves teaching, physics, and engineering. He's a former public school physics teacher who has used computer science, engineering design challenges, inquiry, and technology toolset in classrooms for over 20 years. Bill has presented his work on project-based learning at many national and international conferences and co-authored a book of classroom activities entitled Physics with Robotics. Bill is currently the executive director of White Mountain Science, a STEM outreach and curriculum development organization in northern New Hampshire. Bill and the Wimsy team are regular collaborators with STEM education innovators near and far. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Before the interview, we always start with a few short questions. So let's start with the, what makes you feel inspired? Lots of things. So I was jotting some stuff down when you sent these questions. And, and of course, it, you know, it's uh, my family. Uh, we've got a lot of different pets from dogs and chickens and cats and horses. Uh, hiking and biking and climbing. We, we live in a beautiful place in northern New Hampshire. And so just walking outdoors is, uh, is truly inspiring. Uh, friends and connections with people. But I want to also mention that phrase, what, what makes you inspired this past year, past year and a half, going on two years, with, with the pandemic and so much upheaval around the world. I was really, I also wanted to answer it in terms of how do you get through some of the rough days? You know, that was for asking myself, how do I do that? And it's boiled down to sparks of, of creativity. I, I have to sit down and, and make something. I have to doodle, uh, you know, write something. I just, ha I have to make an artifact, a thing I can look at and say, I, I just did that. And in that moment, I got lost in creating something. And that's been one critical thing for inspiration over the past two years. Um, and then the other one was, would just be these authentic moments of connecting with people where you've cut through whatever it is, your, your roles, the actual thing you might be doing that day. And, and you're just having that shared authentic moment in this crazy, crazy time. So those that's inspirational. Yeah. Taking a moment to be creative and then connecting with people. Yeah. Very true. And then is there any people, book resources that have been particularly influential for you? Yes. This, this may sound a little strange for a, uh, a STEM podcast, but can I read a poem? Of course. Oh, yes. So uh, for many, many years uh, in my, in education, Prior to this, I was worked in um, what we call outdoor education, so environmental education. I helped folks. I taught people how to build and fix trails in the mountains. And I learned of an author, Gary Snyder. And this one poem I keep coming back to. Uh, let me let me read it to you and see if you can get the the main theme of this poem and why this would be so 
to me, inspirational for STEM projects. So the, the poem is called Goofing Again. Goofing Again, I shifted weight the wrong way, flipping the plank end over, dumping me down in the bilge, and splatting a gallon can of thick, sticky, dark red Italian deck paint over the fresh white bulkhead. Such a trifling move and such spectacular results. Now I have to paint the wall again and salvage only from it all a poem. Nice. <laughs> so, okay, what do you think? What's inspirational in there when we're teaching STEM? I would say that it sounded something like you try something without knowing how it's going to end yeah. up. Yeah, you just need to try, right? To do things and just wait for the best outcome. And if not, you try again. That's exactly. And, and, uh, but imagine that image of a, of a, of a gallon can of red paint. And he's trying, he's, he's painting a white, white bulkhead on a ship and he spills it, right? So like, it's a glorious failure. And, you know, as he said, spectacular results that he, he's got to paint the wall again, but he gleaned from it something, which was that, you know, that poem. So even if we have spectacular failures, what, what can we pull out of it? Yeah, sometimes you learn more from failures than from successes, right? So it's, yeah, it's great. We're going to steal your poem. Yes. <laughs> to, to explain what STEM is. <laughs> yes, it's goofing, goofing around. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Agree. Yeah. Then next one is, what's one thing you wish you'd know when you began your career? That's a good question. I began my career slowly. You know, how I got to becoming a teacher happened over many years. And as I said, I was involved in after college and outdoor education. So I knew I always enjoyed working with people and teaching people. One thing I'm really glad I did is I did a lot of different jobs before I was a classroom teacher. So I, uh, as I said, I worked and taught folks how to do trail work, how to do rock climbing, how to hike or be safe while hiking. I did construction jobs, of all things. I worked in the uh, auto industry for helping a friend's father when they were, you know, selling used cars. Uh, I've been a janitor. I've, you know, uh, in many different places done maintenance. And so I, I'm really glad and I've traveled, right? So I've traveled by bus, by train, by car. And in the, my early twenties out of college, that's what I did. And I actually, I called it uh, the sinusoidal economic plan. So a sine wave is up and down and a sinusoidal economic plan is earn money, spend it all, earn money, spend it all, earn money. And so I, I, I had that opportunity and I was really blessed to have that opportunity from my family that I could take some time after college and, you know, as I say, work from job to job, make, make money and spend it as I traveled. And then when I went back to teaching and, and I got a, uh, my, my master's degrees in, uh, in teaching and then went into the classroom, I was so glad I did that because not only it, it just gave me more perspective, it gave me different types of confidence when I was making mistakes because I was making mistakes as a teacher. One year, I, there was a particular physics constant I was teaching and I, I taught it with the wrong plus or minus sign. So I taught it with a minus sign when it should have been taught with a plus sign or the other way around. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my gosh. So there's a whole year of physics students that think this one particular constant is minus instead of plus. Yeah. <laughs> I think they'll live. But what, so what was important to me is I had so many of these other jobs and experiences that gave me some context. And I'd already met a lot of different types of people, not all types by any stretch. I'm still pretty insulated living in the Northeast of the, of the US. But that helped and continues to help me a lot, just that it's about other people's experiences when they're coming to the table to learn something. And I had this time to 
have my, a lot of different experiences myself and meet a lot of different types of people. That's great. Like you said, open up to new ways that you can think, approach things, different perspectives. So yeah, that's, that's great. And uh, what's a common myth about your profession or field that you'd like to set straight? I hope it's not common, but I fear that it still might be. And maybe the pandemic helped change the impression people had. But an old myth about teaching is you'd go home at three o'clock. Your day ended early and you had summers off and you had, you know, all these vacations. I would try to help people understand that teachers work likely more than a year's worth of hours in their 10 months. The myth of early days and summers off, I don't know a teacher that has that experience. And, and, and I say that, that maybe the pandemic helped change that impression because so many people were in a situation where they, they themselves as parents were teachers. They know it, it's a never ending task to help design a learning path for somebody. And then they saw in the, in the subsequent months and years, if their school was remote, they, they really saw what that teacher was doing over many, many hours. So just the impression that again, it's, it's short hours you know, it's it's amazing, hard work, totally worthwhile, takes a lot of time. And I, I hope everyone who's listening who has an opportunity to connect with either a teacher that they have now or a teacher they've had in the past and thank them. When that's happened to me, when a student's reached back out over, you know, sometimes it's been years later, or I see them in a locally, you know, we live in a small town. So generations of students are uh, in the town when I'm when I'm here. It helps. It helps. It's a small thing. But when somebody thanks a teacher, it really goes far. Oh, that's a yeah. nice advice. So everyone who's listening, go and say thank you to your teachers. Yeah. For sure. And I, like you said, even if you would quit a day at three, it's not like you stop thinking about your work or what you're going to do tomorrow or next week. And especially right. that things are changing so fast, right? So you need to start to thinking constantly how to make this better. No, that's right. That's right. Each, each year you can refine things. But the exciting thing is you can be inspired by all of the experiences you, you have out of school at the end of a day or on the weekends. If you can manage the balance between work and life, not always easy, and I don't think I've done it well in my life, but it's so exciting when you can connect the things in your everyday life with what you're doing in the classroom. Because ultimately, all of our classes, even if it's a discrete curriculum of a topic, it's high school physics. In our human experience, it's connected to everything. So that's been, to me, the most exciting part about education is where everything connects in and, and there's a way to, to do that. So it's just so many opportunities to be creative and that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. So let, let's go and start uh, talking about STEM. Could you tell us shortly what STEM education is? Well, as you said, uh, Roxana, in the intro, the, the word was coined some 20, 20 odd years ago. And I actually had a chance to meet somebody who was, according to one story, who was in the room when it happened. And prior to STEM, and I can't remember, maybe MAST, there were other acronyms before that, maybe MAST. Yeah, I remember you know, that they, too. Hmm. SMET or yeah, yeah, something like that. Exactly. Smith. Yeah. And the gentleman I was speaking with was at a, a meeting and there was a sort of federally funded at NSF here in the US and they were working on ways to make education relevant, connected to the workforce, more integrated. And, that, and that's what prior to rearranging the letters, that's, that's what this meeting was about, the initiatives to have our students do the math, the engineering, science, and technology in an integrated fashion. And I think it was as simple as it just sounded better, that STEM sounded better. And, and what's powerful, and I, 
And then the work Arduino does, the work that other open source maker companies do, you know, we live at a time when there's so much innovation and people are starting companies. And it's what I mentioned earlier about calling whimsy, White Mountain Science whimsy. Some of this is kind of poetry. It's trying to find the things that stick and STEM we remember, we don't remember what their other arrangement of letters are. So STEM education, as, as there's a long history. I started teaching a, as a physics teacher. Math is the language of physics. So automatically there would be the science and the math in there. Here's an example of one of the projects we did my second year of teaching. We built roller coasters so that the technology, not only to measure the roller coasters performance, but to build them. And the engineering, so we worked with a group of engineers at a local General Electric plant. So they, they were in, the, in that physics class. The mentors on this project were, were engineers. And as I mentioned before, I helped people, people build trails. So engineering and designing and making stuff. So it's just been integrated, this idea of a project. And there's no boundaries within the project in terms of what discipline you have to use. So it's, it's only a math project. It's only a physics project. So for me, STEM was just a very natural integration of topics. And what's exciting is it's grown in recognition so that others are trying to stretch themselves beyond some boxes of in the curriculum to incorporate other topics, you know, in the class. But I will share one, one anecdote from, uh, I think we can attribute this to Bill Nye and boy, it would be awesome if Bill Nye, the science guy were listening, uh, who's also the executive director of the Planetary Society. But Bill Nye was in a talk once was, was asked about STEM and now, I also really love the acronym STEAM and with the, uh, with the arts in there. And there have been other, if you, if you look around the literature, you look around schools, adding, we could add other letters in there. Or it's STEM plus C for computer science or STEAM plus C for computer science and arts. And one thing he commented on is he said, we have to be careful if we add too many letters, it's just going to spell school. So there, there's this interesting tension between it is everything. Well, that's just school. And in a funny way, we're, we, if we really pursue what inspired STEM to integrate subject matters, it is school. And wouldn't it be neat if, if our experiences in school, teaching and learning was less about the walls between us and more about the cool projects we're doing? Very hard to pull off, especially with the inertia that's, that we have with schools and the set curriculum and set grades and set topics, et cetera. But, uh, but I like that. It's really what we're striving to do with kids is school. Yeah, I think you covered a bit about the difference between traditional science education and STEM. It's also like you're sticking into this one subject or you're trying to follow this one discipline. But with STEM, when you're creating the project, you don't really worry about is this math or engineering or, or something else. But is there something like the core difference between traditional science education and STEM? So what's tricky is the word traditional. Um, and what, what do we mean? We always do STEM with a little e, meaning we, we, it's hard to, we, if we don't intentionally think about the engineering and design, then the modern classroom, if, if you're measuring stuff, you've got math and science woven together automatically. So you're, they're never without each other. And in, the, in this modern world of technology tools, we're always using tools and the technology and the students are, there's no longer a typing class much to the chagrin of, of, of some folks. There's no longer, or there are very few classes that teach technology separate from the classroom. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's pockets and maybe the traditional model is still has aspects of STEM in it. And it's a matter of how much STEM. But then 
how do you think STEM has changed education? Like, could you give us a picture of education, the education landscape pre and post STEM? No. <laughs> so, because <laughs> it's, I don't want to paint a black and white picture, and it's more of a continuum of experience. And I think, as we said, the moment folks said STEM, it, it was already doing it. They just rearranged the letters for STEM. You know, we're all, it's already a 20th century idea that we're carrying into the 21st century. I think there's, there's one phrase that we, that's familiar to educators or some educators is this idea of a pendulum. And the pendulum swings, and maybe it's a, it's like the physical pendulum if you've ever seen at a science museum that that swings throughout the day and goes around. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but a Foucault pendulum, Foucault pendulum, pointing in all the different directions. But it, but there's a swinging, so it's it's not as much that's before STEM and after STEM. It's for a given school and community. What are we focusing on that year? And it will flow from we're focusing on perhaps, and that, speaking from the U.S are our students performing well on these standardized tests? Are our students getting top grades and getting into top universities and jobs, et cetera? That, in some places, the swing is when it's so extreme there, I think that might be equate to what we're, we're thinking of as before STEM, is we're, we're so focused on the, the discrete experiences of students and their learning measured by, and in the past, I would, I would say the tools to measure student learning were we're not effective. We're not, we're certainly not effective at measuring the full experience the students were having. So when we're focused on a simple, te a single test and, and grades, I think the pendulum has swung way out there. And if we, when, when the pendulum is swung this way in a particular school or community, and it's about holistic projects, student-driven projects, student experiences, really rich, rich stuff that frankly does take a lot of work. And when some key people leave a school, that pendulum might swing back again. So there tends to be an education, the swinging pendulum, depending on who's in the school community or in the community where the school is, maybe it's this, the, in the U.S., it's this, the state we live in or the uh, federally directed laws, et cetera. But I think that's this, we're always swinging. So even if we think in some places that we've, we are really embracing STEM, I want to caution folks to think that pendulum might be up here, but it's, it's continuing to swing, you know, so what would take a school to in their swinging pendulum to remove the simple measurement tools, scalable, cheaper measurement tools of standardized tests, just take that away completely. That's just, so when the pendulum swings, it doesn't even swing over there. So I don't know if I've answered the question, but I think we're continually in this, maybe in this, the idea of the question, we're continually pre and post STEM all over the place. Um, it's just that there's maybe more classrooms aware because of STEM's popularity that, you're given permission to do it, to embrace multiple subjects in one one class. Yeah, it's like you said also, the other end where we have the projects and the other end kind of where we have the exams or that that way. But I've heard from teachers that it can be tricky to evaluate these projects or evaluate their design process or what is the outcome of this teamwork. Do you have some uh, some tips? How can we do that? How would you do that then? without having exams, for example. Would, no, boy, you're absolutely right. And it's kind of a matter of point, pointing at what are the hard aspects of teaching. And, and we might argue that uh, uh, grading a project. So how did I grade in 1998? How did I grade this roller coaster project? And for me, 
the the challenge of grading this was far more exciting or in, in, um, or worth it because my students were engaged. You know, I would walk in the classroom and the parts and pieces for the projects they were doing would just come come off the shelves and and, and onto their desks and they they were working and. There were certainly moments when students stayed late at night to work or came in on a weekend. So this idea of, oh my gosh, I'm not having to plan these lectures every single day. I'm not making the mistake of the plus or minus on that particular physics constant because I didn't read my notes right and I'm giving my shaky lecture because I'm anxious. So to me, the yes, it's a challenge to figure out how to grade this, but it's picking your challenge. So I. I pick these engaging projects so I don't have to do the, the zillions of lectures and even grade. I, we, I would call it a, or I learned it from a teacher, this phrase, you know, I'd bring my bag of papers home, you know, tests, uh, essays, et cetera. And I called it my, my little bag of guilt because I wouldn't touch it. I'd, I'd bring it back the next day and I hadn't, I hadn't graded anything. So to me, this idea of giving students the authentic project that they were in outweighed the challenge of finding some kind of grade. So, so now you ask the valid question of how did we grade it? And really the, the end of it was trying to figure out what's the, what's the process? What are students going through parts of the process? So, and some of it's yes, no, it's one or a zero. And I have a friend who grew, who's a high school teacher in Hanover, New Hampshire, and he'll, he'll put the criteria out for a project. And some of it is showing up on time, you know, using most of the class period effectively, resolving conflict with your team. You know, he'll have a whole list of, of things on a, on a checklist and between the group and himself, they'll just put ones and zeros there. And it's okay if you get a zero on a day. Like it, there was a bad day. You didn't get along with your teammates. That's okay. Um, it, it, a, a single point in a big project's not gonna sink your grade. And I would always tell students, if, if at the end of this thing, your grades not what you, you want, I don't want to quibble over one point. The end of the course, did this make a difference in how you were evaluated for this whole course? Let's talk about it then. I, I, you know, I, my, my assessment on whether something is a 98% or a 97%, I'm not that accurate. I have no, you know, the, to distinguish between those two points. So I try to tell students if we're worried about just a single point or the difference between a B minus and a B, let's talk about it later. Let's 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 come back to it. I, I, it's it'll be reasonable to change that grade if that's if that's what uh, is needed. So I so I I guess the answer to the question of, of what are what's an idea to grade projects is take the process steps, and quite frankly, there's there's certainly so we were doing this roller coaster project. And the one rule is that the, the, the models of the roller coasters, simple rule to live by, they, could, they were not supposed to kill people, right? You get on a roller coaster ride, you want it to be safe. Yeah. And, and, and so since nobody was riding these little roller coasters, I, I said, you got to show me the math, prove to me that this thing's not going to kill people. And, and so we, we looked at roller coaster safety and there was this one guideline that roller coasters are designed by, which is, you know, make sure the acceleration on the rider is never more than four times, maybe three, three to four times the acceleration of gravity. 
And so what's really cool is my assignment was super simple. Make a roller coaster that doesn't kill people and has in no in no place has an acceleration of greater than four G's. So they had to show me that work. So okay, I could give them points for their process to do the math to go through their roller coaster to demonstrate at all places where is this where is this safe? And it's gotta work. So they had to get it, they had to do the electronics. Um, we didn't get too much into waves as a physics curriculum. So I had to do that afterwards. Um, but otherwise we did energy, we did force and motion, we did electronics and magnetism, uh, electricity and magnetism because they had working motors in the systems. So what is like one criteria the students need to meet that requires them to do a lot of the math and or say in, in my case for physics, they had to do a lot of the math and physics to demonstrate this one thing. This roller coaster is safe yeah. yeah they have to go through the whole process to get to their result yeah i like that and i like the idea like you said having the conversation that the students were also aware of how they've been graded what are the different things that are expected from them right and the other motivator is i said all right folks we're going to set these up in the gym because the roller coasters i i was teaching physics in uh, a classroom that was formally designed to help teach um diesel engine repair so it was a gigantic room uh which i was lovely so the students were each given a sheet of plywood to work on their to have their projects so a sheet of plywood you know in us four feet by uh, eight feet and so they had the other challenge we they had to figure out how to take their project apart get it out of the garage door i was fortunate my classroom had a garage door and, and get it into trucks and drive it around and bring it into the gym to have a showcase night. Uh, so that was another thing is, is, is if the students stick with you the whole way and they stand by their project uh, and the project is working and they can say uh, with some competency why it doesn't kill people, <laughs> you know, it's an easy, like you passed. Okay, now let's figure out, is that a, you know, where, where in the ABC is this? Let's go back and look at your points throughout this year and let's, let's just have a discussion about it. Um, but I like having that, if we can get to this moment of showcase, it's okay if it doesn't work. It's just what, what can you, how can you talk about it with your friends and family and classmates and community members? You know, if, uh, that's a super evaluation moment is when students share their work outside of the classroom. Don't just, I don't want to just carry it around in my bag of guilt and graded or not graded. I want you to share it with the community. And in doing so, if you've shown up to do that work, you passed, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's also like being so excited about your school project that you actually want to share it with other people. You want to talk about it at home. That's really, that's really amazing. Yeah, no, exactly. That's always, that's always a, a highlight is when you, when you talk with a, another, a sibling of that student you have, or a family member or friend, or they were telling me about the project they're doing in your class. I was like, oh my gosh, that's the best news ever. Yeah, yeah. true. And uh, do you think that there are commonalities and variations in educators' conceptualization of STEM education? Is there like, a, now that you, we were talking about the pendulum and you know we have science, technology, engineering, mathematics, is there like a standard that a school or a teacher can follow? In the U.S., I, the next generation science standards, I think 
do a pretty darn good job. I mean, I'm guessing you might hear in me in the, the stories I have that I'm, I'm a you know progressive kind of teacher, uh, and and it's about student experience and 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 it's at the end of the day it's not about the standards it's what what happened in the moment of designing the roller coaster and sharing it with the community. Um, but as I've looked at and I've done a plenty of work with the next generation science standards and helping teachers and schools, um, the phrase is unpack the standard right. The standards are written in a way that's very efficient because they can't give you the whole, all of school, all of science, K to 12 in a book, book would too, be too big. But again, it's back to what Bill Nye said, it's, it's school. But the next generation science standards, I does a really good job of integrating the science with the engineering and the math is woven in, you know, computational thinking, you know, so the, the next generation science standards has the the practices of scientists and engineers. Uh, and on one hand, you've got the scientific method, which is not a recipe. It's a, a, a set of uh, great ways to approach inquiry and, and, and an experiment. And you, you move among all the different steps. Um, but then they also have the practices of engineers and they highlight what's the same and what's different. And so with a scientist, we, we pose a question based on curiosity and we just need to make observations and, and uh, you know, work towards creating a model to explain the things we see, testing that model. It doesn't have to solve any real world problem. And, I, and the, the challenge for teachers, and this is where I think the next generation of science standards does a good job is, okay, I feel like I can do that. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a science teacher or I'm a math teacher. But this engineering part, I don't know how to teach that. And that's, so the practices of engineers is to, ha, is to solve practical problems. So, so what, what I coach teachers on is on one hand, when you're doing it from a scientific perspective, you're curious, you're observing, you're asking questions for, for no other reason than to try to understand the world you see, try to describe the world you see. And when you're coming in from an engineer's perspective, you're trying to solve practical problems. And you're going to use what the what the scientists have described because you need to. It's efficient to uh, utilize uh, Newton's laws here on Earth because they work really well. Um, but if you're in, in, a, in, a, in a GPS system in space, you, you have to use Einstein's. You have to use you know, relativity, so you can't use Newton's laws. But I love what it, the, the Next Generation Science Center does is it goes among the standards, coaching teachers in those two perspectives of thinking, and then working towards giving students opportunities to demonstrate their learning. And, and, and what, is, what does it look like if they've demonstrated uh, their understanding of a particular concept in science or a process in engineering? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned you've been working a lot with teachers and helping them to also implement this in their classroom. But is there, have you got any feedback or have you, when working with the teachers, what kind of support do teachers feel would improve their efforts to implement STEM pedagogy in their classroom? Boy, if we could pull it off and we could team teach, I think one of the biggest supports I would love any classroom to have is more than one instructor in the room, you know, and, and if that can be pulled off because two, two teachers join a 
into a larger class, but it's still two teachers. If when that can happen, that's great. There are wonderful in, in many schools in the US, uh, there are wonderful professionals that are in the classroom and they're there helping a few students. And what I do is, is work to have them, their work help the classroom and me. So we work as a co-teaching in a co-teaching setup. We've also, and I was inspired by some folks at, at Tufts University at their Center for Engineering Education and Outreach. They did a mod, started a model, boy, 20 years ago called Stomp, which is a student teacher outreach mentor program. And they put university graduate and undergraduate students in classrooms, you know, with, with the, the, the parts and pieces of a STEM, you know, curriculum, and they would be the safety net. So these young uh, undergraduate and graduate students would be a safety net for the teachers. They would help uh, design lessons, demonstrate, and work through those lessons with the classroom and the teacher. Um, and so having more than one instructor in a student's experience, I think that's a valuable resource. And if it can be more than one instructor at once, at one time, we co-teach, oh my gosh, that would be, you know, an exceptional resource. Yeah. Yeah. And having teachers from different subjects, then they could actually cover both of their, what they have to cover in terms of the curriculum, but over one project. That's right. And, and yeah, I'm proposing cool. things that are difficult to do in, in, in some settings when our schedules for classes are, are boxed up. But even one thing we'll do with our programs is we, we call them blue shirts. We'll have high, high school students come and help in middle and elementary school classrooms. So those high school students are co-teachers uh, and, and youth instructors and help the classroom teacher with more people in the room. I mean, we, we know this in, in some university settings as teaching assistants, um, but we should fill our classrooms with teaching assistants, assistants uh, of any age, whether it's your colleague down the hall or it's an older student who you can figure out a way to have them help you in your classroom. Um, so again, that by any means, how, or parents, I've had parents that have volunteered in the, in the class. Um, and any way we can get more than one instructor in the room helping to guide and coach the learning, it, it makes these sort of more challenging project-based learning curriculum, it makes them easier to do. It's, it's not as, right? many, many hands make light work. For sure. That's interesting what you're saying and also having parents uh, helping deploying this. So that, that's very interesting view and it will be nice. So parents get more involved in the children education and actually see what they're doing. Actually, this, well, this past, you know, year and a half, two years, parents were very involved in, in not, you know, not everywhere, but in so many places around the world, parents went in the quarantine were the teacher. Where, where there were instances when that didn't wasn't good, and the parents were like, "Oh my gosh, I never want to teach my son." You know, how do we how do we find the good, like the splatting of the red paint can? How do we find that yeah. there's a spectacular failure? But what what's uh what successes can we pull from it and and communicate to parents they are the number one teacher in their kiddos' lives, and then to extend that say, be that number one teacher with me in the classroom. Yeah. So how do we teach parents to be okay to fail in front of their kids? <laughs> so they're, they're okay to try uh, out. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, another phrase I like in, cause the word failure is just so loaded 
And, and, and in engineering, we're, we accept it, right? You have to, you know, what are the modes of failure? You have to understand that before you design something. But it's still a very loaded term. And, and, and like I mentioned with, you know, words are powerful. You know, poetry, words are powerful. So the word failure is powerful. So one other word I would encourage some people to, is, is don't use the word failure. But use the word try on. Like you go to a store to, to get a new shirt and you try it on. It's okay if it doesn't fit. Uh, you go get another shirt. So how can our parents and our families and our schools and teachers encourage students and themselves to try on ideas? And if they don't fit, try on the next one. That's okay. Um, you know, we, we, it doesn't, doesn't have to fit the first try. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, the word failure is very loaded. So try out that I like that better. And do you think that of course, in your experience at what, what you have seen, students taught under the STEAM or STEM framework are better prepared than those that are not? Again, that's a black and white question. And I'm not, I won't, <laughs> I'll, I'll say uh, <laughs> false, <laughs> true, true, false. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Because there's so much in goes into what prep, what does preparation mean? Pre and preparation for what? Uh, I, I would be honest with some of my high school um physics students, and I'd say, all right, I, one of my goals for you is that you, if you take college physics for any reason that you, you're not shocked. So I, I, I understood and I would talk to my students. I, I know that you, you likely might join a classroom where you're solving a lot of math problems or you're, or, uh, you're, you're going to see the definitions of these laws and concepts and phenomena, et cetera. So I need that. I want you to, I want to make sure that first semester, even that first month, you're not shocked. So I, I would actually teach my high school physics students in a very traditional way because I wanted them to have some experience. So if, when they went to university or another setting using physics, they weren't, they weren't shocked, right? Because if, 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 when I do the project-based work and it's curiosity driven, we don't cover everything. And, and so I know that if I need to prepare my students for certain experiences, this might not do it all. So I try to find the blend and try to understand with the students, or I might be honest with them and say, when we're doing this approach here, I'm, I'm helping to prepare you in a very broad way for life. You know, you're not going to necessarily memorize the fact that can impress somebody at the dinner table and impress somebody in an, in an interview in the moment, but you're going to learn skills that help you have uh, growing opportunities in your, in your life. Um, and so I'll be honest with the students. That's what I'm aiming to prepare for. And then when they, when I need to prepare them for a test, I'll say, okay, folks, we, we've done this for a while. We let's try our best. Let's try on. I mean, hmm, let's do our best here. Let's, let's take a week. Let's, let's cram, let's study. Let's, you know, try to look at the test as another project to, to try to, to prepare for, but I'll, we'll, we'll, it's like, what's that balance between preparing for the test if the students have to take a test or the college class, if they have to do that, I try to say, I, I want to do, I want to try to get by preparing you for that. Admit that I'm not preparing you maybe as well as other places for that, that single thing, the AP physics exam. But we're going to try to do enough to get by. And anyway, it's, I guess really be, being honest with student with with students and families about what we're preparing for. All, that being said, 
what I love about and I'm passionate about in terms of STEM and what we're preparing our students for is a world of work that doesn't exist right now. A world of, of well, we at, at Whimsy, we're focused on actually where it's not STEM, it's creative problem solving, right? At the end of the day, it's STEM is a broad set of letters for a lot of different types of problems and tools to solve problems. And so when, when we have a, an approach like STEM or STEAM, we're equipping students, and I and I use the phrase from Mitch Resnick uh, at at uh, the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at MIT and and Scratch, if if you know the Scratch programming, and he's his focus. Yeah, I was inspired by it. Was is creative problem solving, um, and in a, a STEM approach, is my my opinion based on my my experience uh, more likely to prepare students for creative problem solving. Uh, across a diverse set of uh, problems in the world that they're going to face and problems we can't identify right now. I mean, we, we didn't, I didn't know as a kid, climate change would be a problem. And I, you know, I grew up in the, in the seventies and 1970s and eighties, blissfully ignorant of what was happening to the world. And, and I didn't know that was a problem. I didn't know to prepare for a world with a changing climate and the issues that come up and how do we live in a world with a changing climate? So we're, we got to prepare our students for problems that don't exist now, jobs that don't exist now. And, and a STEM approach is a holistic way to equip our students with, with the tools for that changing world. Yeah, that's a good point that no matter what the topic is or the, the subject in, in that sense is by going through this kind of learning about design process, how to solve problems, you have then the tools to solve whatever kind of problem. It doesn't have to be a math problem, but you already have the mindset more. Exactly. As a, as a plug for physics, this is why I love, I became a physics major as a student. And my, my, it was my brother that taught me this, uh, older brother. He's like, Bill, if you learn physics, you can do anything. Yeah. You know, like, and, and of course he's exaggerating. But but physics is the the mindset of solving physics problems using math for it, uh, connecting uh, the sub science to so many different types of phenomena, you know, really prepared me for engineering and prepared me for you know scientific thinking across the board. Others will argue that this their subject, you know, my, uh, my wife Sarah is a biologist and and anyway we go back and forth and it's a wonderful sparring match but <laughs> it, it is about getting that foundation uh that you can use to solve many different problems yeah that's true do you have any final thoughts resources or recommendations for our audience yes good <laughs> it's like <laughs> go ahead good, <laughs> good. Yeah. there are so many boy I, I i think just looking around you there's i mean the resources online i mean what you all have done in our, at Arduino and providing documentation for, for the projects. And, and what I love about, and this is a pitch, you know, we didn't have to pitch Arduino and I work with Lego and I work with lots of different types of tools, but the entry level for Arduino in a very technical world is, is, uh, is awesome. And so looking out there for resources like Arduino that, that back up an exceptional product with a lot of resources. And whether it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Lego robot or it's, a, it's an Arduino product, you can go online and pick the kinds of things that help you. Like, uh, I was working with one teacher who was a young teacher and Reddit is a place he likes to go to, to find resources. 
and he was finding what he needed. We were working on a, a Lego Mindstorms robot. He went and found a, these great Reddit channels to to uh, to be inspired by. We know YouTube has a wealth of resources. Um, of course, Make Magazine, the maker community, um, has a wealth of, of resources. So I think it's a bit of a searching to find what style fits you. It's like music. What kind of music do you like? You know, what type of, do you like to read? And so then there's a host of books out there to get uh, or, or websites to go to, to read through uh, and be informed by that way. Uh, the audible books that are out there on teaching and, and learning. So I don't have specific resources, but I guess the tip is, is just start looking and, and, and really look for the things that click with you it's it's the style of music you like, right? It's it's it uh, makes you feel good when you're learning it, and 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 pursue those, and and you'll find what right? you find one uh, YouTube channel or website or author, and then you ask, well, who are they reading? Who are the, who are who are their their influencers? And then you 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 kind of follow along, but uh, keeping your eyes wide open for the resources that are out there, and then. Teacher to teacher, I can make really specific recommendations once I get to know who they are, where they're coming from, because there's just so much. It's great. It's a good It's a good thing, it's, but it could be a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I hope that was sure. a good answer. Yeah, it is. I like that, that you said, just look for the type of support or style that fits you and then yeah. you were good. I, I really like that recommendation. So, because yeah. sometimes we don't think about that. So what fits you? So that's a very good one. And, and try it on. It's okay if it doesn't fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Take one shirt or another. And <laughs> like you said, that, that's another a very good uh, advice and recommendation. It's been really inspiring to talk with you. Yes. I really liked our discussion. Thank you for today. Thank you so much, Bill. Oh, such a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Many thank people you. will be benefit from this talk. So thank you so much. Oh, good. I truly hope so. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. So what did you like about today's topic? Give us a review and join the conversation on Edivision Live episode on Thursday, November 4th at 5 p.m. Central European time. You can comment and participate on the live chat on our social media channels on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Crowdcast. Exactly. You can find, of course, and check the episode afterwards and find the direct links from arduino.cc slash education slash edivision. So thank you for listening. See you next week.